Our text today is Psalm 126. This is the word of the Lord. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for your word and for joy, for the joy that comes from you. And so, Lord, we ask as we we study this today that you impress it upon our hearts and our minds and our mouths and that we carry it with us everywhere. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that's interesting about being in space like this, and it's the timing is a little bit hilarious because Vern's phone went off right as I was about to say this, but it had nothing to do with Vern's phone. It's that we have all these noises, and I was praying, and I could hear Christmas music out there. <laughs> it's incredible because it's, it's, it's Christmas season. Man, I love Advent so much. This shouldn't surprise any of you, but our postmodern, post-enlightenment world is really focused on pleasure. It is structured around this idea of manufactured happiness. Just think about advertising. Advertising is designed to make you believe that whatever this product that they're slinging at you will make you happier, that it will bring you the fulfillment that you've always wanted in your life. You're, you're going to smile a lot like the people in the commercials. You maybe even get a free puppy because there was a puppy running around in it, right? And this is the same with the fakeness that we find in social media, that that overly happy or the perfect couple or their perfect life or their perfect trip or their perfect children or the idea of a social media influencer. I don't know. That's not a job, especially you under 18. You need to know that. That's not a real job. Right? They're going out and they're showing their happiest, best life ever, showing all these products that were given to them for free, all of these things. And then we do it to kids, too. We, the greater, broader we, do this to children as well. Just do whatever makes you happy. Whatever makes you happy. Just just pursue those things that make your heart happy. Now, I don't have any way of verifying this, but I think this idea of happiness is actually relatively new, especially when it comes to this idea of personal happiness. Now, public schools, the prisons teach this. Self-help teaches this. Therapy has made a whole business of trying to keep people always happy, but they never can seem to get to it, and they keep having to come back to therapy. And so this this elusive idea of happiness, and it really is elusive, and and here's why. Here's why I think. Because the, the notion of happiness is always tied to something else. It's a feeling. It is a feeling that is tied to something else, which means because it's a feeling, it could always be fleeting. Right? In fact, our, 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 modern, our modern concept of happiness doesn't exist anywhere in Scripture. This idea that like, just pursue whatever your heart desires, it's all about you, doesn't exist anywhere in Scripture. Actually, the closest, the closest word in Hebrew is the word ashray, which it's translated in the ESV six times as happy, but it doesn't mean like, oh my gosh, I'm just so happy with Stephen, he's so great. He just gets me all the things, and my life is wonderful. No, it actually means blessed. 
<laughs> it, it, it means this result of, 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 of God giving you, you something blessed. But like I said, I can't prove this, but I believe that this idea of happiness is relatively new, especially in our selfish, me-focused world. I would call it the cult of self. Now, I say this not just because it's true, because it's also prevalent in this book that I'm reading. So I'm reading David McCullough's book on the pioneers. Like I buy books when they go on sale on Kindle, and then like my, uh, my need to be bouncing back and forth on what I'm reading, I'm like, oh, let's see what's on the Kindle. I didn't know I had. Like two weeks ago, which is a terrible time right before PhD finals, I was like, ooh, this book on the pioneers looks really good, and it's incredible. And then I had trouble trying to focus on schoolwork because I was like, I just want to read more about pioneers. But I've been reading this book about the folks that pushed westward, uh, moved to Ohio, they settle, that they... <laughs> I think I said this, maybe I said this last week, I don't remember. Like, they're leaving, and they're like, well, what did they take with them? They took two oxen and four horses and a cow so they'd have milk along the journey, right? <laughs> As they're going to take their family a three-month journey to make it from the East Coast to Ohio. But, but nowhere... Nowhere in that text, as you look at these people that are pushing westward, do, does it ever say they were on their journey to, to find their personal happiness? That, that pushing off uh, and exploring, exploring new lands was all about fulfilling their personal happiness or to find their, their inner personal meaning. You know, if they just got that new wagon with those two new oxen, they're electric oxen. It's better for the environment. Yeah. <laughs> and... Still powered by coal. Uh, <laughs> we were at Elitch's over the summer, I'm sorry. And we were like waiting in line for the twister, which looks like it's about to fall apart. And there's a coal train going by, and I think it was Tristan. He's like, what's that? And I was like, that's Tesla fuel, is what that is. But um, so, right, the pioneers were like, man, if we only get this new wagon and these new oxen, then we're really going to be set. Then we'll have true happiness on our journey. No, uh, th th there were lots of things that they did joyful things that they did, serving one another, acting in duty, working hard. But it was always joy that was the undercurrent of their journey. They felt like they were going in service of the Lord, and they were doing it in joy. And it required hard work, and it required toil. And most of the men and women that I read about were Christians. Many of them uh, had folks that were, were pastors. They, they, what's the first thing they're starting in these towns? They're building a church. They're building a congregation. Many times they were Puritans. German Reformed Church had a great influence in Ohio in the early 1800s. These were men and women who lived out their faith. They actually lived out the dominion mandate. They, they had that post-millennial hope. I think they really did. They were going out, they were doing God's work. But it wasn't to make them happy. But they were joyful. And there was very real struggle. I mean, very real struggle. Children were dying. We, we, we joke, those of us old enough and have some gray hair played the Oregon Trail on a, like an Apple IIe. You remember, they had it in the library, and if you were really good, you could play a computer game. These kids don't have any idea what the struggle is like. Yeah, it was, it was. They were dark, those were dark ages. They were dark ages. But there, there, were, there was struggle. People died. Uh, toil is hard. But I read a lot of the letters. There's correspondence that goes back and forth. That's so beautiful, like letter writing. And to be able to connect with the past through it. We do that through Paul's letters, what Jason just read in our New Testament reading for the day. But what you see is you, you see these joyful Christians living out the hope they have in the Lord, 
because they're doing something because it's bigger than themselves. Even, even with extreme tragedy, disease was rampant. Uh, the, the road was hard, literally. There were tears of sorrow, literally. But there's joy. There's an undercurrent of joy because they knew the Lord. And I, and I think, and I said this last night at the outpost, that one of the things that seems to me to be missing so much from the Christian experience and the people that we interact with is joy. Like, th 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 there's this cultural buying into the lie of happiness and missing joy. And, and, and happiness is like the if-then, if-when. If this happens, then I will. If this, then I. If this, then I. It's always a trade-off like that. And, and the grace that comes from the Lord isn't like that. But when you buy into this cultural lie, then we get to see the results. And we, we see the results outside. And, and you know what? One of the, the key uh, mental illnesses diagnosed right now, it's depression. We, we were listening to Pandora the other day. And we don't pay for Pandora, so you have to listen to the commercials. And Chris and I were in the kitchen, and a commercial popped on, and it was for parents giving them signs to identify depression in their children. Here's 12 signs to look for for depression. Does your child sit alone in his room and play computer games? <laughs> I mean, seriously, they listed off stuff, and you're like, wait. <laughs> but you created the children to do this, and now you've created... A it's crazy. They're, they're, they're selling these things because it's so prevalent. Because we, we live in this world where happiness is promised but never delivered, but nobody except the Christians are talking about joy. And then when we see cultural culture infiltrate the church, then we see churches that are focused on happiness and on joy, and we can't fit, these Christians can't figure out why people like us are still here raising a glass and having a good time and living out the joy of the Lord. Because the reality is... Joy will always satisfy, and happiness will not. Now, here's the good news. We are called to be a joyful people. We have a joyful path ahead of us, and we must help the church, the broader church, the universal church, recover a joyful attitude, a joyful countenance, because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And what we're going to see today as we look at Psalm 126 is that joy, it's, it's joy that keeps us strong in periods of waiting and anticipation. Joy is what, keep, will, is what will keep us going in periods of, of anticipation and especially in periods of toil. It is literally joy that can allow one to persevere when you feel like there is no way to persevere. That's what a joyful heart will allow you to do. That is a heart that shouts cries of joy because it has hope in the Lord and because of the love received from the Lord. That's what we talked about the last two weeks. And next week, we're going to talk about the peace we have in the Lord. So this concept of joy, living in joy, shouting in joy, these should be things that are external markers of us to the world when they interact with us. We are people who work while we wait. We strive while we're being persecuted. And, and we can do this because unlike happiness, joy is permanent because it's not tied to those external material things. It's the result of a gracious heart that understands the free gift of grace that Jesus Christ gives us. It is the result of experiencing redemption and forgiveness. And that's what we're going to look at as we look here at Psalm 126. So our psalm today consists of three parts. It consists of 
gratitude and an acknowledgement of the grace of God's deliverance. That's a similar theme as we've seen the last couple weeks. It has a prayer of acknowledgement, and then it has the hope of the future and the final restoration. And so I actually think this becomes kind of a formula for us for joy. Gratitude, acknowledgement, and hope. It's kind of the, the formula, I think, for joy. Now, we don't know the exact timeline of this psalm, but we can assume that it takes place after the return of God's people from exile. God's people have been freed from captivity. Look at verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. So first, the, the psalmist acknowledges that the fortunes of Zion have been restored, that people have been returned from captivity, and, and it was the Lord that did it. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. But those people, the people whose fortunes restored, the people who came out of captivity, they are like people who dream. Their release from captivity was so incredible, it was like a dream. Uh, undeniable that it was only the Lord that could have done it. That's why those words, when the Lord, are so important. It was so impactful. It was so impactful, their freedom from captivity, that they, they had no doubt that it was the work of God and not the work of men. It was a truly astonishing event. It's one of those types of events that you kind of do that blinking thing. You're like, is this real? Am I, am I dreaming? Did this really happen? This is actually impossible. And yet, here we are. The next verse, verse 2, is my favorite. Look at the response. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Now, you can feel this. Part of the beauty of poetry is it helps stir this emotional response in us, which connects us to the Lord. You can feel this. They're laughing. They are shouting with joy. They're literally singing with joy. This is why songs matter so much. This is why we are to be a singing people. Go read Psalm 100 if you want to think more about singing in joy. So they're shouting in joy. They're singing in joy. And then they proclaim to everyone, the Lord has done great things. They proclaim to all the nations because, you know, the Lord is ruler over all the nations. And they're laughing because it's undeniable, because it's powerful. This, this incredible grace of God, the restemptive, rede wow, that, see, you make new words up when you stand in front of people, restemptive. I've made a handful of words up in this, in this pulpit. Redemptive and restorative are the two words that I meant to bring together. The redemptive and restorative power of God, their fortunes, their lives, all of these things, they're back. They're restored. When they were under incredible persecution, and there looked like there was no pathway out. Those things, they're restored. So how do the people react? They laugh and they dance and they feast and they sing because it's incredible. You wouldn't believe this. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. If you had a joyless heart, you'd be like, the Lord has done good things for us. We are glad. It's not how they're responding to this. They are proclaiming the great things that the Lord has done. And their hearts, we are glad. We are radiating with joy. They are in joy because of the grace of the Lord. Their joy, I think what is incredible, is not rooted at all in themselves. We worked really hard. and We pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. And you should see all the things we did. And now we're really happy. 
They were acknowledging that none of this could have been done themselves, that it had to come from God. I love John Calvin's words. On his commentary on this psalm, he says, He therefore describes no ordinary rejoicing, but such as so fills their minds as to constrain them to break forth into extravagance of gesture and of voice. To break it out. Like, it's good. We are to be a feasting people. I'm probably going to say that later, but I'm going to say it again because we are to be a feasting people. But, but this is like what Jason read in the New Testament reading from Thessalonians. This is what allows them to actually pray so deeply, is the acknowledgement. So to be in constant prayer, you have to acknowledge the incredible grace and the redemptive power and the forgiving hand of the Lord. And because this is no ordinary rejoicing, it leads them into no ordinary praying. And so then they pray in verse 4, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. See, it's interesting. They're celebrating that they've been restored, but they're also praying for restoration. So what they're saying is there's still more work to be done. You can be in joy because God has delivered you, but that's not... They know this isn't the, the, the end of the play. There's still more work. There's still more restoration. There are still people outside of the camp. There's still people that don't know the Lord. Restore all the fortunes, Lord, like the streams in the Negev. And this is in the midst of feasting and celebrating and, and laughing that this feels like it's a dream. Seeing the incredible hand of God, they still pray for future restoration. Because they acknowledge the work isn't done. Because they're still captives. Look at verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Again, incredible imagery. If you slow down and chew through the Psalms, you see this incredible imagery. Those who sow in tears, every one of you know what that means. Every one of you knows what that feels like. I know it all, in all of your lives, every one of you has at some point had to sow with tears. The psalmist in this case is talking about people that are in exile. He's praying for their tears that, that, that even though they, they sow in these times of difficulty that they will reap with joyful singing. He wants their tears of sorrow to turn into rejoicing in the Lord. But not just ordinary rejoicing, that rejoicing with deep joy. Verse 6, he goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy bringing his sheaves with him. It's a statement. He's making a statement. This will happen. There's hope. This will happen. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. There's this acknowledgement. The joy, the shouts of joy. It's going to happen after the difficult sowing. There's hope in the future, in the promised harvest, restoration, fortunes, bounty. All of it resting in the goodness of the Lord, acknowledging that it can only come from Him. And so the result is joy, shouts of joy and perseverance. Don't you, this is incredible. Like when you, when you think about how the redemptive hand of the Lord works, all it does is it tightens the joy circle up. And you just end up being more joyful. You're like, I understand God's grace, and that leads me to joy, leads me to repentance. And it just, you, you start moving in that space faster, and it keeps you more joyful because you understand the power of this. You understand that there's hope in this, not just now, but in the future. And there's so many reasons that I love the Psalms. 
They're deep and they're rich. I love them because they, they contain a connection to those who came before us. Our past is so important. Tradition is so important. It's never to be worshipped, ever. That's insane. But connecting to those who were and those who are and those who will be is part of our hope. It's, it's the covenant of God from the very beginning of time until we are restored, until we are restored in God's eternal kingdom. And so when we read the Psalms, they connect us to the people that struggled and the people that rejoiced and the people that lamented, just like us, because there's nothing new under the sun. That's a great line. Somebody should say it. They touch life in real ways, in real struggles. And so this imagery that we find in poetry is a way for us to prayerfully put into words the indescribable hand of God. You see, we need the Psalms today more than we ever have. I know I encourage a lot, but I mean it. I mean all the things I say, except the words I make up. If you aren't spending much time in the Psalms, you should. Read one a day. There's all kinds, I mean, you should be in your Bible every day. But, but read a psalm every day. I try to read the whole Psalter every month. It's incredible. It was a practice I started when I was Jewish. I read it in Hebrew. It's a practice I've continued now. I promise you it will impact your faith in a positive way. Pray through the psalms as the psalms pray it. And then chant and sing the psalms later. Because I promise you it will connect you deeper to the Lord. And this psalm is a particular and beautiful reminder of us today, isn't it? You see, we are people who can laugh, like truly laugh. And we should be sometimes thinking we're living in a dream world, not a nightmare world. Some of it feels that way, I know. There's hope. But we are, we are living in a dream world. The Lord has restored so many incredible things to us all. We live in the most prosperous time in the history of ever. It's my favorite example. But you can drink the water out of your toilet. I'm not recommending it. But you live in such a prosperous time where there's clean water in your toilet. Just think about that. We also live in a time where we have more access to information in the history of ever. We have more access to food in the history of ever. The more access to drink in the history of ever. We have variety. We have snacks. Do you know there were generations of people that didn't have snacks? They ate meals. And they had to kill their food. <laughs> If we're hungry, if any of us, like if somebody had a blood sugar problem right now, Stephen could get us food right behind that curtain in seconds. We, God has truly brought his people back. He has. We're really lucky that we get to look through the world, this, the clarity of looking through the world through new eyes. And, and I think when we do that, some of it can actually feel like being in a dream. Like you blink and you're like, this is really incredible. Like all of this. Like, and, then, and then thinking about the way that God's hand orchestrates the universe. And then how, it, how he orchestrates men to be creative using their gifts to glorify him. It's really incredible to, to innovate, to grow. I mean, just think about this. Think about how much innovation has taken place in 100 years. My, my mom is 82 my grandfather was born in 1901. My mom was born in 1941. Even the amount of things that have changed between 41 and 2026. You can ship a package right now and get it to almost anywhere in the world. Probably not today, tomorrow, but in two days, right? They open on Monday. You can pretty much 
have a box of something, if you spend enough money, and get it to anywhere on the planet in a day. That's incredible. You can hear the voice of another human through a satellite telephone anywhere on the planet. We can help people suffering from disease in ways that we have never been able to before. Garen's surgery used robots. Tiny little micro-robots, little hands. That's incredible. That means people can recover quicker. Now, of course, all of these things can be used for evil, too, and we're all well aware of that. But we shouldn't forget, we shouldn't forget with shouts of joy how bountiful and how lucky we are. You, as Christians, have at your fingertips access to more resources than any other time in your life. I've got Bible software that has tens of thousands of resources. They're all indexed. They're sorted. They're in the original languages. I could, it is like Bible nerd heaven. It's a dream. But see, it's not only that. You see, your real fortune isn't any of these things. These are cool. These are the ranch dressing or the ketchup for your french fries. You can still have the fries and be happy without them. Joyful, not happy. Just gotta watch your words. Because your real fortune isn't the stuff or the medicine or even the clean drinking water, though that's helpful. Your real fortune is the fact that you know that you have been given new life in Jesus Christ. Death to the old and, and alive in the new. You are welcomed into the house of God. You are forgiven of your sin all because of the finished work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he finishes his work, which means you can go begin your work. And that alone should blow your mind. Should blow your mind. That is the greatest fortune that any of you can have. You were an enemy before a perfect king, but he made you clean through the death of his perfect son because he loves you. There is no greater gift of love. There is no greater gift of mercy. There is no greater gift of grace. It should blow your mind. You should feel like you're living in a dream world. You have rights and privileges because God loves you so much. He has assured you the resurrection of the dead. He has assured you a new life in Jesus Christ because you are fully justified before the Lord and you are constantly growing in your sanctification. Your dark heart, He did that for you. Your dark heart, God did that for you. It should blow your mind. It's the greatest fortune ever. And that should actually lead you to just incredible laughter. I mean, that's the best part about all of this, isn't it, right? Like, especially when people, like, try to sling things at folks. They say, oh, you're bad. You know, you did something bad years ago. And you're like, yeah, I know. I'm aware. They're like, wait, you're willing to talk about it? Yes, I'm forgiven. We're not defined by our past. We're grateful for it. It's the pathway that leads us to the narrow path so that we can enter the gate with humility but when we look back on our lives, we should laugh <laughs> because God loves us. And then when we look at how our lives connect, I mean, this is crazy. You guys are connected. That's people coming to church. We know other people. It's just should lead you to incredible laughter because it could only be the hand of God. It's joy. <laughs> how, how could you not respond in joy? God saved you. A sinner. You, you can't. There's nothing you can do. No matter how hard you work, there's nothing you can do. And God still saved you. It should lead you to sing. 
to shout with joy because the Lord has done incredible things for you. He's done spiritual things to you and he's done physical things for you. There are spiritual things and there are physical things so that you are glad, so that you are joyful because you know his grace. And that's how we have this overwhelming, overriding joy. Because all of this, all of this, this, it's all from God. You see, this is why we're prayerful and actionable people, even in the midst of trial and struggle, like the pioneers. I'm not comparing our lives to the pioneers. We need a lot more people that can work hard like the pioneers. That's one of the reasons I'm grateful for all of you. But these were people that lived their joy in the Lord out as they were working and toiling to build. They were prayerful and they were actionable people. One doctor writes about how he had to ride horseback 20 miles to go visit some people in a small settlement. We drive 20 miles each day. We don't even think about it. This is a large journey with limited information. But he's writing in a letter about how much he loves the ride because I can't remember how long it took him, but as long as it took him to ride 20 miles on horseback, he spent the whole time looking at the flora and the stars and the smells and the animals. And it was his favorite commute. He didn't call it a commute. But it was his favorite commute because he got to experience the majesty of the Lord as he was riding off to care for God's creation. It's incredible. And there was hard work and there was death. And there were those who were still in exile. But he still saw the beauty and had the joy in the Lord. It's no different now. There are people in exile. We, we see and experience a world that doesn't know Jesus. I'm so unplugged from the internets, thank God, from so the social medias, but I catch it on like podcasts and I'm listening about Taylor Swift. And then I'm thinking about all of the Christian parents that are okay with their young girls being heavily influenced by Taylor Swift. We can see the rotten fruit. We, we know the results of the rotten fruit and it's heartbreaking. But Satan wants you to be joyless. He wants you to be without hope. He wants you to look out there and see those things and be like, man, it's, it's never getting better. Lord, just teleport us off this planet. That's why we've got to sing the Gloria Patri more, the earth that never ends. But see, we can go out and, and work in this world and be in it but not of it because we are never without hope and we are never without joy. We are prayerful people. We pray to restore the fortunes of the lost. We say it, we take the tithes and offerings here. We have these gifts and these gifts to share because they're not ours. They're ours to steward. They're ours to use responsibly because we want the world to know the joy of the Lord. We want the world to experience the hope and the love, and the joy, and the peace of Jesus Christ. We want everybody in the world feasting and rejoicing. So we pray, and we laugh. We pray that the sowing of tears will eventually reap with shouts of joy, that we can laugh with these people that didn't know Jesus Christ before, and laugh with them when they're like, I can't believe it, I'm in a dream world. You're like, yeah, I know. I know. Been there. Still there. We want to pray and remind people that those who go out weeping will come back shouting with joy, bringing their work with them and using it for the kingdom of God, bringing the sheaves, glorifying their, the work of their hands and doing it not for themselves but for the kingdom of God. 
this, this hope and this joy is so applicable in this season of Advent that we're in right now. We're in this season of waiting, in this season of anticipation. But it's joyful waiting, isn't it? There's candy. There's so much candy. I took a crown out last week with Taffy. And I have a wonderful dentist that was working with me cost-effectively for not having insurance. We put the old crown on. She says, you know, there's a crack in it, but I think we can get two years out of it. And I said, that sounds great. And then the next morning, I had some sourdough toast, and I cracked the tooth. Candy. I know. It makes both pulling it out with the taffy and the crunching of it on the bread, it just makes a noise, and you know it happened. You're like, oh, nope, that happened. But I'm still going to eat the candy. I'm still going to eat the bread. I'm still going to have the cookies. I'm still going to sing the songs. Christmas has a smell, doesn't it? I remember when I was a kid, it was the smell of the pine tree. We always had a real tree. We cut our tree down. It's great. There's trees. There's lights. There's decorating. There's cooking. There's feasting. There's ugly sweaters. There's carol sings. There's joy. But there's also this anticipation. We're preparing. Christmas is a week from tomorrow. Much celebrating to be done. Much preparation. There's anticipation of that as we prepare. The kids continue to anticipate why there are no presents wrapped under the tree yet. <laughs> Wait, exactly. It's a, I, there's a meme. I try to send it around every Christmas. It says the Calvinist dog. It says, is anybody really a good boy? It's like a very sad-looking golden retriever. It's pretty great. But you see, we're in this season of anticipation and in times of waiting, sometimes it can be hard to be joyful, right? It can be easy to get wrapped up in things that take us from joy. So when we live in joy in times of anticipation, it's about preparing for the joy of the future. As we live in anticipation for Christ, celebrating Christ's birth, we are preparing with joy to celebrate. That's why it's so sad that we've taken Christmas out of Christmas, pretended like it's the holiday season. Though amen to that dude that cut the head off the satanic goat thing that guy's great. I like him a lot. All kinds of made-up holiday traditions have been created around this season so other people didn't feel left out. We base the world's calendar off the birth of Christ. We measure time from it. But then we allow the pagans to pretend like you can make up holidays because everybody knows it's the Christmas season. Everybody knows that this is the celebration of Jesus Christ's birth, but Satan doesn't want them to be in joy and to celebrate, so they pretend that you can live in pluralism and enjoy, but you can't. Happy holidays is not the same thing as Merry Christmas, because happiness is always fleeting. Think about that. Happy holidays. There's something powerful about that phrase, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. There's no happy holidays here. There's Merry Christmas here because we are merry people. We are joyful people because Christmas is coming. We're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate the birth of the one who is the promised Messiah. He was the hope. He's the restorative hope that the, the psalmist is praying for. He is that restorative hope actualized as a man who died for our sins He's the one that completes the final restoration. It's joyful because we're celebrating this incredible marker. Both his birth and also we're celebrating in anticipation of his return. It's such an incredible time as we spend time between these two advents right now. 
The first advent, Christ's birth, and the second advent, his coming again. And so we wait with joyful anticipation. This is why what you believe about the beginning and what you believe about the end impacts how you live in the middle. If you believe negative things about the end, then how are you going to live a joyful life in the middle? If you believe that all of this came by accident, theistic evolution or some silly nonsense like that, then you can't be surprised when you don't see the absolute glory in those leaves. Or as Andy Wilson says, the beauty of the crack in the cement. But we're hopeful people. We know that God keeps His promises. We know that He keeps His covenants. And surprise, the spoiler alert is, He's already told all of us the ending. So we live that out in hope, in joy, actualized in the future, and we do that laughing and singing even while we're waiting, which leads us to praying. And what we're praying for is the final restoration, to restore our true and final fortunes, heaven and earth reunited, our lives lived out in our future resurrection. You see, it captures so perfectly why joy is so much more important and impactful than happiness. This is why we, in the midst of struggle, can laugh, because we know the joy of the future. We know that everything in this world serves God's glory. We know that God is in charge, and we know the story of Jesus Christ. We celebrate it, right, to remind us and to remind people of the joy that comes from Jesus. Like, we should be throwing the biggest Christmas celebrations and inviting all the pagans. We light our house up. It's so bright. Guys, those of you who haven't been, you got to come by. We want everybody to experience the joy of Jesus Christ radiating from our home. I mean, I said last night, it's the best plot twist hero story in the world. Satan gets beat by a baby. <laughs> I was born in a barn. God transforms the world through a baby. He restores the world through a baby. It's like Calvin said, he therefore describes no ordinary rejoicing, but such as so fills their minds as to constrain them to break forth into extravagance of gesture and of voice. So this means that we as people who know Jesus Christ and we know his return will come. We should be feastful and joyful people. We should be laughing people. We should break out into extravagance of gesture and voice. We're going to do that later with interpretive dance. Michael, you go first. <laughs> now, this doesn't mean we have to always throw the most extravagant and fanciest parties, but we should. You don't always have to use your fanciest linens, but sometimes you should. But what it does mean is even if you're having a picnic or you go grab a bunch of Subway sandwiches and you end up at the hot springs, we should be, we should be people that throw the most joyful feast no matter where we're at. And why dinner and feasts? Why does it always come back other than like, I'm just a fat kid and I like to eat? Why does it come back to dinners and feasts? Because that's an incredible place for us to express and experience the joy as we remember Christ. I want you to pay attention as we come to the table in just a little bit about what we say, what I say when we come to the table. That, that every time, every time we break bread, we have wine, we are to do it in remembrance of Jesus. God didn't even have to give you tasty food. He could have just given you, like, human kibble. 
but he made all of these incredibly creative and beautiful things, these cheat codes for us to find in the universe. I like Sweet Bloom coffee. They deliver it to the house, and it's a guilty pleasure. And today's beans were roasted in jasmine, honey, and peach. Yeah. There's joy in that. There's, there's human gifting that is beautifying, taking dominion over God's creation. We get to feast with it. Our meals and tables should be places of joy and feasting. Others should be able to come and experience the love of Jesus Christ in them, at them. Don't put people in your table. Our neighbors, especially those who are sowing tears, should experience the joy of Christ. That's why in houses of mourning it's so important to be with people. That's why in houses of mourning, we usually bring food. Because people connect joyfully over a meal, over a glass of wine at the table. We love to have people for like first dinner at the thighs so that they can experience Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You see, a blessed man, going back to that word at the very beginning, is a joyful man. And his table and his home will reflect that. And it becomes this reminder in periods of sorrow and difficulty in the seasons of the dark nights of the soul that there is still joy because the Lord is good because he redeemed you. We read this book called He Leadeth Me. It was written by a Catholic guy. I've talked about it before. Long story short, he wanted to go do mission work uh, to the Russians. The Catholic Church is like 1940 or 37. They send him to Poland instead. The Nazis invade. He follows a whole bunch of Poles to Russia and ends up in the gulag for 15 years. Rough. They found bread and wine to do communion every day so that they could have a meal, so that they could be in remembrance of the joy of the Lord. He did also say that the Baptists were in one corner and the Roman Catholics were in another corner. <laughs> but he, he did one thing that was really incredible, and this is another reason to memorize scriptures. He talked about how they were so grateful for their Baptist friends because the Baptists had memorized most of the Bible because they knew the scripture. Read your Bibles. It's important. We are in joy because the Lord is good, because the Lord has redeemed us, because even with sin and evil, He is good and loves us, and we are His. Even in the midst of the most horrible tragedy, God's people can still be joyful. That does not mean laughing at the wrong times. Don't laugh when compassionate words are needed or kindness and peace need to be given. But it does mean laughing at the right times, even in the midst of sadness. Laughter is some of the best medicine. I said that last night. I remember sitting with Daniel's family, we were talking about Daniel's death last night. And I remember sitting with Daniel's family after his death and sitting through some very difficult conversations that involved very difficult family dynamics. But the one thing that continuously brought that family back together was laughter and these hilarious stories of Daniel. Like his, his dad was a pastor and he's got this image of Daniel when he's 12 and he like found the biggest suit he could find in the house because he didn't own a suit because he was 12. And he's standing out in the parking lot of the church greeting everybody in this like seven times too big suit because he just was full of life. And his family's laughing as they're remembering these things. Laughter, laughter is incredible. We laugh about the things that came before us. We laugh about things that can happen in the future because they remind us of God's goodness and mercy. And God's universe is funny. There's incredible things to laugh at. That's joy. Joy is singing it is singing, it is seeing the song and the beauty and the intricacy in everything. It's also singing actual songs too. Just think about the tune, Joy to the World, as we wrap up here. 
Joy to the world makes a statement. We're going to sing this next week. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let only the churches in Denver receive never. I'm sorry, let earth receive her king. Now, for the record, I just want to, I said this last night as well, I want to make sure I clear anything up, lest I be called a Christian nationalist. I'm not. I'm a Christian universist and planetist. I'm definitely, certainly a Christian earthist. So I will start on earth and I'm going to expand all the way to the farthest ends of the universe because it's all God's. Every bit of this is God's. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. We as Christians, in the manner that we live, in the good times and the bad, are the ones that are to be proclaiming joy to the world. We are proclaiming the joy of the king whose birth we will celebrate in a week. And we are proclaiming the joy of the world of the coming again of King Jesus that will end all evil, that will end all suffering, that will restore the fortunes of the faithful, the most wonderful fortune ever, which is to be reunited in peace with God. And so that's why we pray that God will wipe away the tears, that the world, that the whole world will experience the joy of the Lord. That's why we act out and live out our great commission, because we are to be people who are spreading joy. We are to tell the world that the gospel is the answer for everything and that it is to reach every corner of the earth, that the whole world will, will eventually acknowledge that Jesus Christ is king. Can you imagine what that day is going to be like when the world is together in joy and laughter, the same joy and laughter and feasting that we experience here in Jesus Christ? This is why the church must recover the joyful attitude. Joy is the external marker of a deep faith in Jesus Christ. So family, I encourage you to laugh and to feast and to be in joy in the Lord this season. Think about his love. Think about the hope that you have in him. And I pray that it externalizes in laughter and joy from your hearts and your mouths. Commit to living joyfully in the Lord. Brush off the vanity and the petty happiness of the world and lean into the most rich and joyful gifts, the fortunes that God has given you, and be content in those. I have a friend, he's an Anglican, and when people get antsy or discontent, he says to them, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. So be joyful. You're exactly where you're supposed to be, because our Advent is a joyful Advent. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful, incredibly grateful for the joy that we have in you, the joy that only comes in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, we are so thankful that you sent Jesus to us to save us from our sin, to redeem us, to allow us to stand faithfully in the calling that you've given us so that we can build your kingdom here. So Lord, we pray that we are those people and that we do it in joy, and that the world experiences the love and the hope and the grace and the peace and the mercy of Jesus Christ through us. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.